0: on in the book of Acts, and this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. If you were here last week, we saw Paul preaching in Antioch of Pisidia, and the people begged for Paul and Barnabas to come back the next week. And this is where we pick up the narrative in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside... And judge yourselves worthy, excuse me, unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord hath commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit this morning To illuminate the eyes of our hearts so that we will understand what's in the text. So that we will rejoice in it. So that we will learn from it. So that we will love it. So that we will live it. All for Jesus' sake and your glory. Amen. may be seated. It's been said with only... The slightest exaggeration that whenever the Apostle Paul preached, there were two results, a riot or a revival. And sometimes there was a turbulent mixture of the two. Uh, The two reactions are clearly present in Antioch of Pisidia. Positively, in our text, we note in verse 44 that after the message, the next Sabbath, when Paul and Barnabas were were going to come back, the synagogue, almost the whole city gathered together because no doubt word had spread like wildfire and they wanted to hear what these men had to say. Negatively, we see that the Jews were jealous because of the great crowds that had come out. They began reviling Paul and they persecuted Paul and Barnabas, which culminated in the two missionaries being driven out of the region. Verse 50 mentions that they were driven out and probably forcibly so. Now, the question I have for you is why when Paul preached were there these strong reactions? Why these extreme responses either positively or negatively? Very simply, because he preached the gospel. Let me say that again in case you missed it. Because he preached the gospel, not the sugar-coated message that is too often substituted for the pure gospel, but the pure gospel, the unadulterated gospel, the unedited gospel. He preached the gospel. He didn't take away the offensive elements of the gospel to make it more palatable and acceptable He preached the gospel that was handed to him by Jesus Christ. The part that people liked and could agree with and say amen to. And the part that made people upset because they understood the implications of the gospel message. Paul preached the whole gospel and he let the chips, as it were, fall where they may. And the chips fell in violent places. When you preach the gospel, and again, the pure gospel, there is going to be a reaction. Count on it. Now, let's review the gospel that Paul preached. Verse 38, and we won't review the whole thing, but he gave a little history of Israel, and he talked about how Jesus was a descendant of David, and therefore the fulfillment of the promises made to David including the fact that he was the king who would sit on David's throne. And then in verse 38, Paul says, Let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Isn't that a positive thing? Forgiveness of sins is available to you in the name of Jesus. And by Him, everyone who believes. That's all you have to do. To everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses. This is a great message. There, there really is no reason to be upset by this message. Paul is making it very clear. And perhaps he spelled out the implications to the Jews. But remember, he's talking to Jews so they understood what he was saying. Paul made it very clear. You know what? We can't be justified by the law. Because to be justified by the law, you have to obey every single command. And if you don't obey every single command, remember what it's written in the Old Testament? He who does not obey everything that is written in the book of the law and do them. If you don't do that, you are cursed. But here's the good news. Jesus came lived a perfect life, died on the tree, becoming a curse for us. So instead of the curse falling upon us, it fell upon Jesus Christ. And if we will just believe in Him, we will be forgiven. How, how could anybody get upset at such a message? But people did get upset. And by the way, That's not where Paul ends his message. He says, now before I let you go, I have one more thing that I want to say to you. Verse 40. Beware. I'm going to send the people out with the warning. Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Ooh, that, that's not going to help Paul win friends and influence people. <laughs> I don't think uh, Dale Carnegie suggested that in his book. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Paul gives them the gospel message challenges them to put their faith in Jesus Christ so they can be free from the requirements of the law. And then before they leave, He warns them. He warns the scoffers, watch out! For what is going to come upon you will be the same thing that came upon Judah. Now, this passage is very fascinating and I actually missed it last week and I just made a brief comment on it and my comment was actually wrong. Um this is a quote from Habakkuk 1:5. It's one of the last books of the of the New Testament. See working our way backwards, Malachi, the very last book, then Zechariah, then Haggai, then Zephaniah, then Habakkuk. Let me summarize Habakkuk for you. It's very easy. It's only 3 chapters. In Habakkuk, the prophet is disturbed because the Babylonians you're describing as the Chaldeans, same people, are coming against the people of Judah. And God says, I'm going to use the Chaldeans, I'm going to use the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, to bring judgment on the people of Israel. And Habakkuk is disturbed by this. How can you use Those wicked people, they're more wicked than the Israelites. And God says, yes, but I'm going to use those wicked people to judge my people who should know better. And then when the time comes, then I will judge the Babylonians for what they have done. Now, the quote that Paul gives is from Habakkuk 1.5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, and it's interesting that Paul in his quote adds, and perish, and perish because of the judgment that will come upon them. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe it if I told you. And that work is Nebuchadnezzar coming against those in Judah, taking them away into exile because of their sin. And then this is spelled out, verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Paul says to the Jews of the first century after this message, Beware, lest what came upon Judah before the Babylonians came comes upon you and your judge because you reject the word of the Lord. No wonder people reacted when Paul preached. Again, he preached the whole gospel and he gave the implications of the gospel and he warned them of the implications if they rejected the gospel. Some 1,500 years later, Martin Luther would advise Philip Melanchthon to preach in such a way that if they don't hate their sin, they hate you. And Luther was not kidding. He meant it. Preach in such a way. Make the implications so clear that they will hate their sin, hopefully. But if they don't hate their sin, know that they will hate you. But you have to make the implications clear. You have to lay it all out so they understand what's at stake. Don't just preach. Give Jesus a try. Maybe He can make your life a little better. Press home the implications of the gospel, including the implications of what will happen if they reject the gospel. And I think we can understand that when we really do do that, there is going to be a reaction. You can't just leave saying, you know, that was kind of interesting. You are forced to make a decision one way or Or the other. And if you have been with us for this series in the book of Acts, you have seen again and again and again that the response was violent. Remember Stephen? He had a message for the people. And again, a a message of how they could be forgiven in Jesus Christ. And what did they say? Thank you for this wonderful message of salvation in Jesus Christ. No, they picked up stones and they stoned him to death. How many times has Peter been persecuted? How many times up to this point has Peter been arrested and put in prison? You don't know, do you? Because you've lost track. What happened to James? Well, James has lost his life. And what is going to happen in this passage that we already saw in the reading? They are driven out of the land. Driven out of the land. Don't talk about forgiveness in Jesus Christ. They are driven... Out of the land. And again, why? Because they're preaching the biblical gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. This doctrine by its very nature divides. Jesus made it very clear to his disciples that it would divide. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34 and following. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus, I've come to bring a sword. And when you give the message, it will be divided. When you say to people, Jesus Christ made it very clear, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You're going to get a reaction. You're going to get a reaction. And this is what the apostles did. Because they weren't playing games. You know what? They understood eternal destinies are at stake. I, I don't think we understand that. I really don't. Eternal destinies at stake. I don't know if we look at people and we realize that is an eternal soul which is going to be saved by the grace of God or is going to perish. The apostles understood what hung in the balance So so they didn't water down the message. They made its implications clear because they wanted people to see. You need this message. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. Paul understood that. So the message was very clear. And as a result, there were great responses. First of all, there was a positive response when Paul gave the message. Backing up to verse 42... As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Some were very interested in what he had to say. And and I'm sure when he said that the promises made to David are fulfilled in Jesus, they needed to think through all the implications that was involved in that. And they begged Paul and Barnabas to come back the next Sabbath so they could consider this more. That's very positive. Verse 43, And after the... The meeting of the synagogue broke up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas and spoke with them. They couldn't wait until the next week. They they followed Paul and Barnabas, probably bombarding them with questions. Now, wait a second. You said the promises to David. Did Did you really mean these promises over here? Could you explain that a little? They followed them along. And many believed. The passage says, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Paul and Barnabas encouraged these people to continue in the grace of God, which clearly implies that the grace of God rested upon them, gave, gave evidence of faith being in those people. And this is basically a call to persevere. Continue on in the grace of God. Do not turn away. From your positive response. And then verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Uh, Word spread like wildfire and everybody in town just about came out the next, the next Saturday to hear the word in the synagogue. So far, so good. Verse 45, but When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They were envious. That so many people wanted to hear what Paul had to say and they weren't encouraged because people wouldn't come out to hear what they had to say. They were jealous. They were envious. And don't forget, envy can be very strong. In Mark fifteen ten, we're told that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the Jews turned Jesus over to them. No other reason. They were just envious because so many people were going over to Jesus and believing in him. That's why they turned Jesus over. Had nothing to do with the contents of the message, had nothing to do with the truth of the message, had nothing to do with theology. It was just envy, pure and simple, and that's where it starts. These Jews come, they see the crowds, and they are filled with jealousy. They aren't filled with joy. They're not saying, this is wonderful, look at all the people who have come out, this is great. No, they're jealous. So then what do they do? They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. So they contradict the message. They try to undo the message, undermine the message. It seems that that doesn't work. And then we're told reviling him. Some translations say blaspheming. So what do they do? They revile the Apostle Paul. In logic, this is known as the ad hominem argument. Any students in here take logic? C.S. Lewis was right. They don't teach logic anymore. <laughs> The ad hominem argument is an argument made personally against an opponent instead of against their arguments. (laughs) So what happens when you can't refute what someone is saying? You start reviling them, mocking them, calling them names. And that's pervasive in our culture. If you can't stand up against the arguments for quote-unquote gay marriage, you call people... Homophobic. And I've seen this. I've seen pastors on uh, political shows and they're actually asked this question. They really are. Um, Are you homophobic? And I hate it that they answer the question. That they even answer by saying, no, I'm not. They've been set up right from the very beginning and they don't even realize it. If I was asked that, I would say, well, what do you mean by homophobic? Define homophobic for me. In other words, right away, they're put on the defensive. And they don't even realize they're being mocked. Basically, you know what's implied when they're asked that question. Isn't it true that you're a bigot and you're full of hate for these people? There's nothing against the argument. It's just name calling. I would say I'm not homophobic. I am theophobic. <laughs> I'm afraid of God. And this is what God says but we're not that bold. But we need to realize that we're going to see this more and more in our culture. We, we really are. Jesus faced this. Remember when He cast out demons? Oh, well, it's by the prince of demons that He cast out demons. In other words, it's because He's demon-possessed. And on another occasion, the Jews said to Him, aren't we right in saying that you are demon-possessed and a Samar- Samaritan? That's nothing but name-calling and mockery Because they couldn't stand up against Jesus' argument. Well, if Satan drives out Satan, his kingdom won't stand. And if I drive out Satan, Satan, how do your leaders drive out Satan? They couldn't stand up with his logic. They couldn't stand up to his arguments. So they resort to name-calling. And we're going to see this again more and more in our culture. And I see it everywhere. I was reading a book recently about the Puritans. And they were just mocked. And you know the Puritans are mocked. If anyone talks about the Puritans, they probably say, oh yeah, the Puritans are the ones who burn the witches. And oh yeah, the, the Scarlet Letter. I read the book or I saw you know one or two or three movies that they've made about that, which just present the Puritans as these legalistic people. Calvinism has been mocked. People don't... They don't question the theology. They don't say, well, let's, let's, let's talk about this. You know, what, what theology did he hold to? Let's, let's weigh the arguments based on Scripture. No, it's, it's just mocked. It's dismissed out of hand. And I say, be careful. You're, you're going to see it everywhere. You're going to see it among Christians. This is common. If people know anything about Jonathan Edwards, they probably know his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And students read in class... And they go, oh, well, it's a good thing he's the quote-unquote last of the Puritans because we don't need hellfire and brimstone preaching like this anymore. Look at how morbid he was. Look at how sadistic he was. Going on and on with images about people who would be cast into hell if they didn't believe in Jesus Christ. We don't want to have anything to do with that. We don't want to have anything to do with that hard biblical truth. That he didn't shy away from. This is our society. And, and he, it's going to come more and more. We, we are turning away from biblical values. And we need to just know that as, as time goes on, I, I hate to see what's it's going to be 20 years, but we're, just, we're, we're going to be like this fringe, whacked out organization over here. We're going to be the radical extremists. Do you know that some Christians actually take the Bible literally? That's where it's coming to. Recently, I I heard about a street evangelist preaching on the streets. And they tried to shut him down because he was using profanity. And you say, what was the profanity? He used the word hell. Mentioning that if people don't believe in Christ, they will go to hell. Now, I I wish the people that were upset at his profanity would would come some morning and join me at the health club. You you want to hear profanity? Just come to the locker room with me afterwards. Profanity, but that's where we're coming. We we are coming to a place where it's the Christians who are the ones who are profane. Can you believe that they use language like that? We're going to be the ones who are profaned. We We have to get ready. This is this, this the strategy of many. And, I, and I'm, just, I'm harping on this point because we have to be ready for the mockery. We have to be ready for answers. And we have to respond appropriately. And I love verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. I love that! They weren't intimidated. They weren't discouraged. They weren't silenced. And that is the objective. Intimidate the Christians. Mock them into silence so that they won't speak their minds. That's the objection, or excuse me, the objective. Paul, Barnabas. If they spoke out boldly, they would not be silenced. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Remember what he said in the book of Romans: first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It was necessary that the word of God go to the Jews first because. They're the people of God. The promises were made to them. So the gospel starts with them and then it continues on. So it was necessary that we preach to you first. But, since you thrust it aside, don't you love that? You thrust it aside. Strong word. You thrust aside. You don't, you don't want to have anything to do with it. And that's a great response too. Paul's making it very clear to these Jews. Since you don't want to have anything to do with the gospel, since you don't want to have anything to do with this message, since you are deliberately rejecting this message, again, Paul's making it very clear. This is your choice. You've decided you don't want to respond to the message. Since you thrust aside and judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life, he's making it even clearer. You have made a decision that you're not worthy of eternal life. You've made the choice. The message has come. You have a responsibility and you say we're not worthy of eternal life. You don't want You thrust the Word aside. You have rejected eternal life. Therefore, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying in Isaiah 49, 6, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, it was never... Confined, Even in the Old Testament, the gospel was never confined to Israel. It was never confined to the Jews. It was always meant for the Gentiles. It was always meant for the whole world. And now Paul's quoting from Isaiah and saying, we're going to the Gentiles just like God said, and we are fulfilling prophecy. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. The Gentiles said, this is great. God loves us. God is bringing us the message of salvation. And notice specifically, they're glorifying the word of the Lord. The Jews are rejecting the word of the Lord. The Gentiles are rejoicing and glorifying in the word of the Lord. We love this word. This is wonderful. It's very important. It's all about the word. This is what's dividing people. This is what's dividing people. The Word of the Lord. Some are loving it. Some are hating it. Some are despising it and thrusting it aside. Others are rejoicing and glorifying in it. And then we have this great statement. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice very carefully. Any commentators, the gymnastics they do around this is terrible. It's very clear. It doesn't say those who believed were appointed to eternal life. That's not what it says. Those who were appointed, those who were ordained before the creation of the world, those people when they heard the message, they believed. They believed. And why do I harp on this? For many reasons. First of all, because it's in the Bible. And when your eyes are opened, you realize this this is everywhere. It's not just in a couple of controversial passages. It really is everywhere in the Bible. Kind of like when you buy a new make and model car. All of a sudden you notice all the other make and model cars like yours that are out there on the road you never noticed before. You say, wow, this is interesting. I never noticed all these before. When your eyes are opened, all of a sudden you say, you know what, I, I never realized that. The sovereignty of God is here and here and here. Boy, it is all throughout Scripture. I never saw it before. As soon as your eyes are open, all of a sudden you realize this is a pervasive theme. And it's a pervasive theme for a world. God wants us to realize that He's in charge. But if you really think about it, this is a glorious truth. Because God is working in our lives. God is setting His affection on us when we come to salvation about a week and a half ago Michelle and I were working out at the health club and a, a woman came up to me and and she said, "Wayne, you're a pastor. Can I ask you a question about the Bible?" I said, "Absolutely, you ask me a question about the Bible." And she said, "What what does the word amen mean?" And I said, "Amen means uh it is true or I agree." And we were talking about, you know, how you love to say uh amen when you agree with something. Michelle said, "That's why sometimes During the service, some will say, amen, I agree with that. Boy, I'm in wholehearted agreement with that. I love that. I said, you know, it's interesting. Jesus would use amen, not at the end of a statement, but at the beginning of a statement. I said, for example, in John 3, 3, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, and I said there's different translations. Some say verily, verily, but in the Greek, it's amen, amen. So right up front, before he says truth, he says, it is true, it is true. And I said, whenever Jesus says that, you want to pay attention. So in John 3.3, 3, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. And she said, what, what does it mean to be born again? Is that a reference to water baptism? And I said, no, that, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit bringing about new life, bringing about spiritual life in, in someone's life. I, I said, go home tonight and and read John three. John three is the only place that specifically uses that term "born again." The concept's found in other places, but that specific term "born again" is found right there. So if you hear people talking about born again Christians, that's that's where it comes from. So Michelle and I saw her uh, the next week. She came up to me and she said, "You know what? After I talked to you in the morning, four other people that day told me to read the Gospel of John." She said, "Isn't that interesting?" I, I said it's more than interesting. I, th- I said it's divine. I, I was going to say providential, but I was afraid that'd be too theological and, you know, miss- I said it's divine. Think about it. Five people in one day said, read the Gospel of John. You know why that's exciting? The God of heaven set his affection on this woman and said, I have a message for you. Would you read the Gospel of John five times in one day? And she said, I went home and I read the whole Gospel of John and I found what I was looking for. I'm waiting with bated breath. You know, you found what you were looking for. And she said, I need to receive the Spirit. Now, I, I don't know what's going on in her heart. That's, that's between her and God. But I love this doctrine because it says that God loves us. He sets His affection upon us. And of course, we always begin by saying, "You know, I believed in Him and I received Him. But then when we learn... But wait a second, he, he appointed me before the creation of the world. And I came to Him because He was seeking me. I wasn't seeking after Him. He was coming to me. Look at all these people He sent in my path so that I could hear what I was looking for in the Gospel of John. Isn't that wonderful? And I also emphasize this teaching again and again and again. Because when you realize that this is a sovereign work of God, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. And if there's anything that our theology, theology should do, it's preserve the glory to God alone. We should all want to say with the psalm, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name, belong the glory. And when you understand this teaching, God gets all the glory, and you just stand back in amazement, and you just say, why me? Why me? And your love for God increases. So as many as were appointed to eternal life on this occasion, they believed and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And that's the goal. that for the word of the Lord to spread. That's what we're trying to do as Christians. We're trying to get the word out there. Again, let's keep the focus in mind. We want the word to spread. And the word was spreading greatly. That's the positive side. The negative side again. But the Jews, still hostile, incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. So these Jews stirred up influential women, uh, seems to be religious women, and stirred up influential men of the city, probably those in political office, and drove them out of their district. And as I said earlier, this driving out was probably forcibly so. We're given a hint of what happened here in 2 Timothy 3. In 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11, this is what Paul says to Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So Paul tells Timothy that he was persecuted at Antioch, and then from Antioch, we'll see next week, Lord willing, he goes to uh, Iconium, and then from there he goes to Lystra. And he says, I was persecuted. And again, this may have been a very violent persecution. In 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, we read, Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Five times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. Um, now, we don't know where this was Exactly, he doesn't tell us. But maybe something to keep in mind as we work through the book of Acts. Um, At different places, this is what he endured. And he may have endured some of this at Antioch, at Pisidia. We don't know exactly, but it seems clear enough that somehow he was physically persecuted and forced out of the district. Verse 51 but they shook the dust from their feet. Now, that is a highly symbolic gesture of judgment. This is what Jesus said in Luke 10.10 and following. He said, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So they shake off the dust of their feet saying, we reject you. We're not going to have anything to do with you. You reject the kingdom that has come near you. Friends, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it's going to be for you. For I pity you when you come before God in the day of judgment. They shook off the dust of their feet and they went on to Iconium. Verse 52, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, by disciples here, I don't know if it means Paul and Barnabas. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it means the believers that were left behind. I don't know if it's a reference to Paul, Barnabas, and the believers. Perhaps it's, it's all the above. Um, But they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And I think this is because they knew they were doing what God had called them to do. And perhaps God had um, purposefully and powerfully filled them with the Spirit and joy. And and maybe I got just an inkling of this experience on, on one occasion when I was... Really was doing something I felt God was calling me to do. Um, it was hard to do, and and someone very close to me ridiculed me for for what I had done. And and I went out from their presence and I went into my day, and I just I think I skipped through the rest of the day. I I, I was just it was just it was one of those out of body experiences, that this is figure of speech, okay? And you're just like, wow! I'm just so filled with. With joy, and it was God's confirmation. I really believe resting upon me, saying, "You are doing what I am calling you to do," and, and I was just filled with with an unspeakable joy. Really, it's just that I couldn't describe. I knew that God was just filling me with joy in His Spirit, and I think something similar happened on this occasion. They preached the gospel. They knew they were doing what God is calling them to do. They were persecuted, and God, I think, rewarded them by filling them with joy and the Spirit. They didn't go away sad. They went away happy. We're doing what God is calling us to do. Now, what can we take away from this? Let me just point out a couple of things. First of all, remember that there's a difference between a testimony and evangelism. Okay, A testimony is your story. Evangelism is Jesus' story. Testimony is when you tell how much God has done in your life. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's a great thing to do. In Mark 5, there was a demon-possessed man who uh, Jesus delivered. And this man came to Jesus and he, he wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus said, No, stay and tell how much the Lord has done for you. No, stay here and you be a testimony. You tell everybody how much the Lord has done for you. You tell them, This is what I used to be like. I used to be a demon-possessed man. And I mean that literally. And tell them how wretched your life was and tell them what God has done for you. That's a great thing to do. We're told to do that. Tell how God has intervened in our life. But evangelism is telling people about Jesus' story. Telling them Jesus lived a perfect life. This is what Jesus did on the cross. This is what happened to Jesus three days later. That's evangelism. Your testimony may be pre evangelism, but talking about Jesus, his that's evangelism, eventually you want to talk about Jesus. And let people know what he has done, what the Bible claims that he has done, and what you believe. So in it, talking to people, whatever you can say about Jesus, uh, let them know. It's very simple. But sometimes, again, we make it too complicated. And notice again, and this is a theme we're going to come to again and again because it's prominent. But the Word of the Lord shows up four times in this passage. It began the next Sabbath. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the Word of the Lord. Not gathered together to hear Paul, to hear the Word of the Lord. And then in verse 46, it was necessary that the Word of God be spoken to you first. The Word of God goes to them. Verse 48, we see, The Gentiles glorifying the word of the Lord. And then in verse 49, we see the word of the Lord spreading throughout the region. So this passage is making it very clear. You want to get out the word. You want people to come and hear the word. You want people to respond to the word. And then you want the word to spread. As Christians, we are to be men and women of the book. We really are. God is an artist. Look at his beautiful artwork and creation. It's beautiful, is it not? God is also an author, and he has written just one book, just one book in, in some ways, he's not very prolific. I mean, some guys have written twenty, thirty uh you know over a hundred books. God's only written one book. And when we get to heaven, he's going to say, Hey, what'd you think of my book? It was the best. What did you think of it? What'd you think of that interesting chapter that I called Habakkuk? Say Habakkuk. I don't even know if I could pronounce it Habakkuk. What'd you think of Zephaniah? Seriously, wouldn't you be ashamed? To say, oh, you know what, I, I never got around to reading the whole thing. I picked it up and I read bits and pieces, but I, I never got, got around to reading it. That's a travesty. The goal is for this word to spread. All this talk about the will of the Lord. It's right here. You know what the Bible really talks about. The Bible doesn't talk so much about finding God's will, as doing it. What does He want me to do? It, it's right here. What He wants us to do. How He wants us to live. 90% of Christians, those who call themselves Christians, have never read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's a tragedy. Friends, we need to be committed to this book. God speaks to us through His Word. This is what He uses to bring the Jews to faith. This is what He uses to bring the Gentiles to faith. This is what He uses to bring the nations from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He uses the Word of the Lord. And then He uses this Word to help us grow and help us mature in our faith. So can I challenge you to commit yourself to reading the one book that God has authored? Find a way. Someone asked me about... This book last week that I that I read from this is this is the one year Bible. I, I use this because then I don't have to get out charts and you know mark off where I am. It's got a it's got a bookmarker right in here for me. This is what I read this morning and then tomorrow, you know, I can just open it up. One year Bible, it lays it out. You can start with Genesis one and then it gives you a New Testament reading in Matthew one. I like it because it mixes it up, and then you read Psalm one and then you begin at the Proverbs, and then you pick up the next day. And you can read a little bit in the Old Testament, a little bit in the New Testament, Psalms, Proverbs. And then you work your way through the whole Bible after a year. And then you know what you do after you finish reading through the Bible in a year? <laughs> Go back to the beginning and say, let's do it again. Because when God says, hey, did you read my book? You want to say, oh, I devoured it. I can't remember how many times I've read it in my life. It's a classic. <laughs> I loved it. Seriously, I, I know there's hard things. The Bible admits that. In and, and 2 Peter 3:16, Peter says, "You know, some of the things that Paul writes, they're hard to understand. Yes, yeah, some things are hard to understand, but you can read it. Okay, if my children can read through it, okay? You can read through it. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to encourage you. You really can. Read through it. Ask God for for understanding. Let's be people of the book. So that we can have the mind of Christ, so we can think his thoughts after him. His mind and his will and his heart had been revealed to us. Not in the stars, okay, not in our navels. In a book. Let's open it up. Let's read it. Let's devour it. Let's close in prayer. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. We truly would be lost without it. Lost eternally and lost in daily living. Father, forgive us for neglecting Your Word. Forgive us for not devouring it like we should. Father, I want to pray for each and every one of us in this room that You would give us an appetite for Your Word. I really do pray that we would be like newborn babes that crave milk. May we crave Your milk. And may we want more than just milk. May we say, now give me some meat. Give me some potatoes, vegetables. Feed me. Father, perhaps we're languishing and we're weak in our Christian life because we're starving ourselves. Father, help us to feast upon Your Word. And when others have questions, may we be ready with answers and give us opportunities to spread Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.